0: Well, welcome back everyone to the white seal theories podcast today on the mic. We got James Simons. I'm saying your last name correctly, right?
1: Yeah, you are first time for everything.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm not usually the best with names, uh, but sometimes they get lucky blind squirrel finds a nut. So today we are going to be talking big woods hunting and really kind of, uh, centered around the, the New England area. So. Kind of as an icebreaker just to get things going, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started hunting, um, how you grew up hunting. Um, I know that you moved up to uh the New England area. Where were you originally from and kind of other the the other
1: states that you hunted in? Well, I so I grew up in New Hampshire, so I've always kind of been in the New England area and then branched out from there hunting other states. But my old man, my dad's the one who got me into hunting. I mean, he got into his into hunting, I I think when he was in his 20s, he grew up as a city boy out of like Lynn Mass, moved up New Hampshire and found some guys up here that hunted that he worked with and got me and my brother into it. I think hey, the first time I went out deer hunting, I was probably five, six years old and grew up, you know, doing stand hunting, which probably relates to not wanting to do much of it now, you know, doing long sits on big oak ridges and stuff like that. And I think that's, that's how I got into it. It's just, you know, my dad, like most people, you know, either their grandfather or their father.
0: Right. Yeah. It it seems like that's the more traditional way that people get introduced into hunting, but you are seeing it more and more that, uh, people are getting into hunting later in life. Uh, one of the big,
1: that's, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, it is really cool. Um and it's awesome that people are like taking that initiative and and honestly taking the courage to to get into it. Uh we were talking about it yesterday. Uh we fee- we both feel like COVID had a lot to do with that too.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I see it more like during turkey season I do deer season here, but I mean, turkey season, oh, you know, since COVID happened, a lot more people have been popping up. I mean, it's great. I mean, I love seeing people getting outdoors. I see a lot more kids with people getting out and it's, it's cool to see like an adult and a kid learning it together at the same time.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, One of the things that I like to ask all my guests uh, in the beginning is what were some of the trials and tribulations that you went through as a young hunter and then, what is something that you wish you knew back then about hunting that you know now?
1: Well, I think I think for me, and I, I mean I tell a lot of people this is growing up, back, you know, when I started doing it on my own and stuff was always always trying to be out in the woods no matter what, you know, getting those number of sits in. And what I've realized later in life, it's not about the number of sits you get in. It's the quality of the sits you get in or the quality of the hunts you get in, not necessarily the number.
0: Dude, that's, that's a great tip. And I actually preach that quite a bit. So let's dive down that rabbit hole a little bit and kind of elaborate on that. Tell me why you feel that. And as, as far as like preaching that, why is that important?
1: I, I think it's, it's the burnout, you know, I, we we touched on a little bit yesterday, but, um, Hey, last few years, I've kind of stopped bow hunting during our September season. You know, our bow season opens up September 15th here in New Hampshire. And I stopped doing it because of just getting burnt out, you know, going out in the woods and putting those miles on early in the season. It seems like come later in the season, my body's almost shot come muzzleloader or rifle season. You know, I still hunt muzzleloader rifle with a bow. But my body shot because of the miles and stuff I was packing on during archery season. So now when first snow hits and I want to track, I don't want to go into that big piece of woods and track because my body's so sore from going all out during archery season. So that's kind of how I got into the whole quality of sits is I realized that I wasn't having such quality sits early in the season and that because I was getting burnt out and that transformed into having crappier sits later in the season because I didn't want to hike as much or I didn't want to try to get to that deep woods bedding area because my body hurt.
0: Right, right. Yeah, there's something to that too. So uh, how long does your season go?
1: Uh, oof. I'm trying to think. Uh, it runs into December. I Don't quote me on it. I want to say it's going to be... I think it's December 4th this year.
0: And is it straight through?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. We don't have any breaks. I mean, the only, I think the only break we really have up here is, like, we have a split for waterfall season where it shuts down for a week or two. Wow. But our deer season literally goes archery, muzzleloader, rifle, and then we have a late bow season, and I think that's 10 days.
0: Wow. Yeah, that that that's a long season that I can see how you can really get burned out. So – Let's talk about kind of the the herd dynamics up there. You with your season being that long and being able to get on them September 15th is it do you guys kind of have like that weak window where they're on their summer pattern still or is it kind of different because you're so far north that it doesn't really work that way and and potentially the habitat's just different because you don't really have any ag where you're at.
1: They are still like any other deer as far as summer patterns go. I mean, you know, I can watch does in a green field all summer long, you know, June, July, August. They'll be in at September, and it seems like till of September, they've switched off of it. And that's usually when you get them in their fall, into that fall pattern where they're starting to hit them hardwoods, you know, the beaches, the acorns. Right. And the bucks, I mean, Bucks, it's kind of the same thing. You know, we see a lot of guys that have pictures of big bucks in like green fields and stuff and they just, they disappear and just because they switch them patterns. And it, you know, it changes again, you know, once that, once the temps drop, you know, they kind of go into that quote unquote fall pattern. And then we get slammed with a rut and then it's, you know, they're that buck you've been seeing on trail cameras popping up or gets shot five miles away. And then they transition back into what, I'd call like a late season winter pattern or after the rut or post rut, where they may still be chasing. If a hot doe is still in the area, but they're back into them. Acorns getting that, getting that fat on for the winter.
0: Well, the reason that I asked was um, most of the stuff that I know of, which is very, very little of new England whitetail hunting is you guys have a very, very low deer density and, you might have to put on quite a bit of mileage till you actually get on a pocket of whitetails, correct?
1: It it honestly depends in what area you are. I mean, you can go to like the southern part of the state, like unit L, unit M, and there's deer everywhere. I mean, you look in any front yard, there's deer. And then like mid-state, like our unit J2, which I grew up hunting and I still do quite a bit of hunting in, there's a good deer population per square mile you know you'll still see quite a few and then you get up into like where i live now it's starting to get into the bigger woods where you know that was the biggest thing for me where i when i first moved up here to the where i live now was trying to figure it out because all the woods are so big they all look so good is trying to figure out exactly where where those deer are so i don't necessarily think the population changes i just think the woods get bigger
0: So, for the people that aren't from New England, can you give the definition of what, like, Big Woods is up there?
1: To me, I mean, it varies from person to person. But to me, like, Big Woods, I'd say if you have a solid 100, 200-acre piece that you can walk through without hitting a road or a house. But, I mean, we got stuff up here that's thousands of acres.
0: Right. That's what I was going to say. So, like, out in Iowa – a big piece of public might be a real big piece might be 800 acres. Whereas like here in Pennsylvania, we have pieces that are 15,000 up to 20,000 acres. Yeah. So it's like you said, it's different from person to person. And I know that you guys have some pretty big tracks up there.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I would say like some of our stuff, because I've hunted Northern Pennsylvania, like a lot of our woods are similar to like Northern Pennsylvania where you have those, rolling ridges mm-hmm. those big standing hardwoods and stuff like that
0: yeah this is going to be great because i'm actually headed up there i'm headed up to northern pa uh for rifle so i'm going to do a little hunting up there and this will
1: Whereabouts about northern pa
0: i'm actually going up to potter county
1: hey they the all stomping grounds for me
0: yep exactly exactly so maybe i'll get a few tips from you um as far as targeting some various terrain types and stuff like that. But let's, let's roll into okay. it, James, when you were hunting, yeah. when you were hunting big timber, what are kind of your tactics? I know you like to hunt on the ground a lot, but let's start at scouting and then work our way like through the season.
1: Well, so obviously with scouting, like I scouting is year round. I mean, it, it doesn't stop. It doesn't matter if it's January 1st or July 1st, you know, scouting, is something you gotta do year round. So I'll break down like how I scouted the property that's behind my house. You know, I own two acres into this couple hundred acre piece behind my house. And when I first got up here I was, you know, everything else that I grew up hunting is an hour, hour and a half away. So I really wanted to figure out tell where the hardwood stands are and stuff like that. But really looking into, you know, where your saddles are ruling out where deer aren't going to go, like, behind the house here. I get a spot where it goes from, I think it's 1,100 or 1,200 feet in elevation down to, like, 400 feet in elevation in a very short period of time. So, like, automatically I take that and I rule that out that the deer probably aren't running that, you know, we're not hunting billy goats.
2: <laughs> right.
1: And then right. from there, I you know, I look for bedding, stuff like that, and I mark everything out on, like, When I I first mapped this all on my Onyx, it just looked like a clusterfuck. I had so many pins dropped on it. And then I went boots on ground, you know, shed hunting, just figuring out where later in the season, you know, in December, because that's when we bought the house, and I put boots on ground in December. and was now marking, all right, they're betting in this area, they're betting in this area. In areas that I marked that didn't have any sign in it, I took the pins right out. So I started with this big cluster of stuff going on. And then once I got boots on ground, I started narrowing things out, taking things out. And I started getting smaller portions of it. And that that's how I break down big woods too, is breaking it into a smaller portion of land.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Cause I think a lot of people get overwhelmed when they look at this big track of land, whether, you know, some like I said, some people like 75 acres is a lot to bite off, but I'm used to a couple hundred acres, and you break it down to a smaller portion, instead of looking at it as a, as a whole, you look at it as a small portion, and you go and put boots on ground in that little small area.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you hop over to this next little small area, and next thing you know, you have that whole hundred acre area plotted out with, you know, old scrapes, old rub lines. You know, I, I went to the extent, I was even marking out where other people had tree stands. To, just where to the pressure group- was at. Yeah, just so I knew that. Where, all right, you know, they're in access points too, where they're probably going to access those stands. Because, me, you know, if they're pushing deer into this bedding or that bedding, either side or behind where their stand is, be a good area to check.
0: Nice, that's a great tip there. So, when <clears throat> and I I want to keep touching on this because I think there's more information that we can pull out of this. So, when you when you're marking stuff on the map and you're basically picking out locations based on topography of stuff that you want to check out. When you go in to look at these pieces, what are you looking at as far as like what's good sign, what's eh, maybe I'll hunt this, maybe I'll just throw up a camera to keep an eye on it. Like how are you deciphering the tier level of what's good that you want to target? Because I think that's really hard. And one of the really underestimated things is reading good sign And then deciphering what's not worth your time.
1: So as far like when I go into like scouting area, I have a backpack full of cameras. And sometimes I'll randomly throw them up. Like I'll find that beat and run. I'll throw them up on that. Like everything that we got now, you know, if your state allows it, I don't know. I don't know why they ever. Some states stopped allowing them, but the cell cameras, where you don't have to hike back in. He's like, like I said, I was putting cameras out in December, so getting snow December, January, February, and sometimes into March here, so I don't want to be out trudging through two, three feet of snow. It's using a cell camera, that way you can they constantly get it to your phone, but as far as like ruling out areas, it that's a tough one, because I don't like to... <laughs> If I have cameras and I can put them out, I want to put them out. I don't care if I have 10 cameras on a hundred acre property Just to me. That's just going to give me more information of what's going on. So to me, you know, it's, if you're obviously, if you're in like this crazy, thick, nasty stuff that you don't even want to walk through, you're probably not going to hunt it. Mm-hmm. So I I ruled, I ruled that stuff out or like those steep drop-offs. And then obviously where other people have
0: their stands. Gotcha. Okay. So like, I, I kind of do something similar to you is where like you, earlier you said about how you basically grid off a piece. So let's say you have a piece just for sake of numbers, let's say it's a thousand acres, right? So I'll block off like hundred acre blocks and concentrate that. It might take me a couple of years, but I'll concentrate on a hundred acre block. And maybe in three years, I'll have that thousand acre piece figured out. I'll know what the quality of bucks are on that piece, where they're concentrating on, how they're moving through it by moving those 10 cameras through that section. I I do almost a very similar thing as you. I, I'm assuming that's what you do, correct?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I move them like I Like I just recently went into the the big piece behind the house here. And I thought I had a slam dunk where the, this saddle that I was scouted in december i put a camera up on december and i pulled the camera probably a month ago brought it back to the house had over a thousand pictures on it you know moose deer bear coyotes so there was a bunch of wildlife that was using that saddle but there wasn't a good spot to set anything up on that saddle as far as a ground blinder or a hang on ladder stand it wasn't anything good it was just so open or too thick so i followed where that saddle went down and I thought it was going to be a slam dunk because down in this bottom, it started getting thicker. Then it dropped off into some really thick bedding. And there was oak trees right on the edge of all the thick stuff. And I thought it was going to be a slam dunk. Put a ground blind out there. Put a cell cam out there. I've gotten one picture. Really? Oh, yeah. I absolutely thought it was a slam dunk. There was an old bunch of old rub lines going through it. And the camera's been absolutely dead. You know, granted, it, it is the rut. So, you know, I'm, I'm more or less looking for those mature bucks out back there. But one big thing I also use that I, I honestly think a lot of hunters don't like doing it, I like talking to people. So if I see another guy in there hunting, you know, he's had his truck or whatever, I'm going to ask him, I'm going to talk to him about that piece. Because some hunters don't want to talk is what it is. They want to keep stuff a secret but a lot of them do want to talk Mm -hmm. and I can bounce information off of them and kind of pull from them, like what they're seeing, where they're seeing the deer, what they're, you know, as far as are they on the edges, cruising the edges of bedding? Are they working through this open oak timber or are they down in the bottoms?
0: How much do you find that information reliable? So, and and kind of um, what I'm getting at here is, I'll do something similar where I'll talk to guys in the parking lot or um, maybe like there's a there's a flat spot before you head up on a mountain and kind of people just congregate there and catch their breath before they head up the mountain and you chit chat for a little bit. To me, it almost seems like when I approach hunters, they want to tell me what's going on because it's almost like a bragging thing. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. Like, I actually work with a guy and his dad owns some property that's, like, right behind my property. You know, he's probably a mile away. And it, it's funny because, like, he'll his dad will get a picture on his trail camera of a buck, and he'll come in and he'll say, like, hey, you got a picture of him? And I'll be flipping through my camera photos looking for him. And, like, oh, yeah, I got a picture of him three days ago. <laughs> you know, so, like, we can kind of figure out there, like, where they're traveling from or what, what their patterns are.
0: Exactly. Yep, exactly. And then, um, you can even use that to your, to your benefit where it's like you said, you talking to guys in the parking lot and maybe they tell you kind of what general area they're hunting, you figure out how they're going in. They might be going in completely the wrong direction as far as like wind and approach access to their stand location and they're bumping deer. You go in and use those people to set up on them as pretty much a push.
1: Yeah, I've done that quite a few times actually. I mean, like last year, I, I feel bad, but I I shot a buck from like under, almost underneath the guy. I didn't even know he was there. <laughs> but the deer, like deer, wasn't even like wasn't going to him. And we, me and the girlfriend were doing a wind bump, and I had her walking down this main trail, and I was going through going through the shit. I guess you know the the thick spruces, the three, four year old cot. And I got, I knew there was a spot where it kind of like, What I've noticed is like before deer go into like any big standing timber or anything, if there's like a bowl
2: mm-hmm.
1: where like, you know, the train changes and they can stand in that because it almost seems like the wind likes to suck down into it and mm-hmm. it gives them a chance to smell everything in that area. So I was working down to that and sure as hell there was, there was a box standing right in it and, My wind was blowing right to him and I'm standing there. I probably stood there five, 10 minutes, just letting my wind blow to him. Because like I said, the girlfriend was walking the trail that he was heading towards and he just stood there in that bowl feeding, didn't want to leave it. And I finally said, you know what? I'm just going to shoot him before he sees me and goes the other way. But that other hunter, and funny because she she texted me and said I just walked by another hunter. What do you want me to do? And I said just keep going because another one of the big pieces I hunt. And what what for? I never talked to him. As soon as I shot, I guess he probably just sprinted right out of there. Because my brother came down the trail probably 20 minutes later. And he said he never even ran into the guy, and we were pretty deep in there, so he must have got pretty pissed off and bounced out. But what I'm assuming is he probably walked that trail straight down. In the way the wind was blowing. Is that it was blowing into that standing hardwoods where he was hunting. So anything that was going to come up into that hardwood piece would have smelled them because the scent, scent was blowing right into it.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. I th- as far and especially here, like our our Pennsylvania rifle season is about to start up this Saturday, and if you can use people's access and you do a big loop around them. To push deer to you. I mean, you can get... That's how you can kill some of your biggest bucks.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, so, speaking of killing big deer, uh, what do you find to be the most successful tactic hunting big woods? So, like, look back <laughs> across your your kills. Where are you killing them at? How are you killing them? Uh, let's talk about that.
1: Oof. I mean, I guess I have, I have a pretty broad spectrum as far as like I've only from what like me like I've only really killed like what I'd consider two big deer you know my big 12 that's 137 inches and he weighed in 181 pounds and my big eight point that he's going 129 and you know for New Hampshire that's a, that's a solid deer and he uh he weighed out at 198 pounds and I shot them both in like completely different setups even like the one I missed yesterday all three of those deer um came in came from different areas as far as like stand setup so we'll go to like we'll start with my big 12 i shot him back in 2012 and he came probably 100 yards off the road and he came from behind the landowner's house and he was just on on a hot doe trail It was a you know a big crossing and i actually was on my way out of the woods when i shot him and he came in behind me. I went in and set up a ground blind and was walking back out the trail and I caught some movement out of my peripheral and I was like, oh, what the hell is that a turkey? And all of a sudden I could hear him grunt. And then I saw antlers come over the stone wall. I kneeled down in the middle of this trail that I mean, it's honestly like a two lane road. It's huge. It's wide. And I'm standing in the middle of it and he steps out. I stop him and shoot him and Funny thing is he died about five yards in front of my blind that I just sat. (laughs) And then, so, you know, he was close to the road on like a bigger, I mean, still a big block of woods, but close to the road, close to the houses.
0: Now, do you think that deer was bedding kind of behind those houses and just watching people walk by?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. There's a pretty good uh, bedding between where that trail is and the house. So, pretty much the landowner's house goes, his house, a little timber uh, oak timber patch, and then pretty thick hemlocks. So they bed in hard, especially when it starts to snow. I start a lot of my tracks out of it. And then it goes back into oaks, and then it goes back into some thick, nasty stuff. So, I, I almost guarantee he was probably bedding there. Probably He probably honestly watched me walk by on the way in.
0: Mm-hmm. I did. I I think that's really overlooked is how close deer will bed to access areas like parking lots, um, trailheads, things like that, and literally just watch hunters walk by.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, last year, this the same spot, uh, me and the girlfriend were going in and we pull in and there was a buck. Like, you know, we're pulling off the side of this dirt road and there was a buck bedded probably 20 yards off this little parking area, just bedded there. I think it's like, it's that overlooked spot where like, you know, no one's hunting, you know, I don't know if people get scared or don't feel comfortable doing it, but no one wants to hunt that first 50 yards off the road. Mm -hmm. Everyone's always thinking they got to get to these far back corners and all this stuff where sometimes right by the road is the best because that's the least pressured. It's, you know, it's pressured by people walking in. But other than that, it's just foot traffic. Exactly. You know?
0: And, and I think there's something to that when it comes to big tracks of timber. Now, that might not work on smaller tracks. Like, let's say you're hunting an 80-acre parcel or or a 50-acre parcel. But, like, when you're hunting those big tracks because of how popular woods, big woods hunting is now and the mentality that deeper is better, you're finding a lot of those more mature deer up front by the parking lots, by the roads, because that's not where the hunting pressure is.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, my brother has a spot where he lives, and he he lives about 45 minutes west of me. And he's got permission for a spot that's got a bunch of hiking trails on it. And he'll go in with his saddle, and he'll sit 50 yards off these hiking trails and have people walking up the hiking trail and have deer in between him and and the trail. And the deer don't even care about the people off the hiking trail. But he was telling me a lady lost her dog, and she stepped off the trail to try to get her dog, and that deer took off. But when when the people stay on the trail, the deer don't even care. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think it's just that it's that common foot traffic thing where, all right, you're just walking down the main trail; they don't care. Right. Routine. You step off of that main trail, they get uncomfortable and they they're gone.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. But, uh yeah, we kind of went down a little wormhole there. Um, back to your your 12 pointer.
1: So that's how he came, and then. Um, the other buck, the other big one I have, I had pictures of him for a while. I just named I named him Charles. Don't know why. <laughs> but I had pictures of him for a while. You know, I am You know, it's no crazy like seek one story where they had pictures of him for years and hunted fifteen different properties for him. Nothing, nothing crazy like that. But he started showing up. I think the end of September on a mock scrape, and he was just nocturnal which, you know, a lot of the big bucks we get pictures of are nocturnal. And, you know, the famous question, you know, how do you hunt a nocturnal buck? And I always tell people, well, you got to wait till he's daytime. And when he comes daytime, you got to hunt until you kill him or hunt until someone else kills him. That's how you kill a nocturnal buck and hunted it for a while. You know, never saw him. He kept showing up. And then my brother hunted it one day and he said he had a hot doe come in and a spike came in, was running that hot doe and he's, I'm assuming it was this deer. He said he saw a big buck come in and he chased that spike right off. Never could get a shot on him. And that was on, I think, a Wednesday or a Thursday. And the next uh, the next time he showed up at the mock scrape, it was during daytime on a Friday. And I checked it Saturday morning. He was there the day before. That morning, my brother sat a stand that was – uh, maybe a hundred yards away by a log landing. and We could hear one running through the thicket between the two of us grunting. And I went back in that night and it, it was cold. It was one of them raw, cold November days. And I had a buddy sitting down, way down the hill. My brother was at a, across the street on the same property in a swamp stand. He had a daytime buck that kept showing up. He just couldn't catch up with him. And my buddy texted me and he was like, Hey, I'm freezing. Like, what do you think about getting down here soon? And I was like, yeah, dude, like I'll get down and I'll still hunt down to you. Kind of do a a wind bump or a push to, them. I was like, I let out a few grunts. I told him, I think I told him like four 4 30, I'd get down. And I let out a few grunts and probably five minutes later, I could see, you know, feet through a thicket walking towards me. And I was like, ah, it's probably a doe. because probably had quite a few does on it. And I watched a main beam pop up from behind a big oak tree, and I was like, ooh, nope, gonna grab the, grab the gun off the hanger now, I guess. And he kept walking straight at me, and I was looking at him through the scope and peeking up, looking at him through the scope, peeking up, and i am he's walking dead at me. And I finally, he gets like 12 yards, and he just looked straight up at me. Like, without a doubt, you know, a lot of people Say, oh, you know, they're not necessarily looking at you because their eyes are so big. But I watched that deer's head and go <laughs> straight up and look at me in the stand. And I was like, fuck, I'm screwed. <laughs> and he kind of just stood there and I was like, all right. I had the crosshairs on his chest. And I peeked my head off the gun real quick just so I could watch like his whole body language. And when I did that, I was breathing on my scope and he turned to walk away because I knew he busted me. And I went to shoot, put the scope on him, couldn't see out of it. So now I'm trying to get the gear and the deer and the scope to get the shot off. And I'm wiping the scope off with of my thumb. And he, he's now at like 15, 16 yards kind of quartering away from me. And he stepped into a hole, gave him the stop and shot. And I get a text from my buddy and my brother pretty almost like probably 30 seconds after, like, did you shoot him? And I sent him a video on Snapchat. And it was funny just because it, it was that deer I was after. But that one came out of a deeper part of some oak timber versus the 12 that came within that first hundred yards of the property. This one was probably, I guess, probably close to three quarters of a mile walk to get into that stand.
0: Gotcha. So
1: that that was probably my most memorable just because of, you know, the story and, having history with the deer and being able to honestly that's the first year i've harvested that i've had multiple trail camera pictures of
0: yeah yeah that's pretty rare honestly uh you don't run into that a whole lot because usually they don't make it too long and if if they do they're usually unkillable yeah so that was that was primary that was primarily a a feeding area correct then
1: a lot of the stuff I hunt, I so I don't hunt a whole lot of like primary feeding. but like, you know, a lot of guys hunt like those big oak areas. I've had the best luck on the edge of bedding. So right, right, at that transition where like that bedding turns into feeding
2: mm-hmm.
1: is where I've always had the best luck. Because I just feel like it's the shortest distance that these deer have to walk. I mean,
2: right? If
1: are you, are you gonna get out of your out of your bed in the morning and then walk two miles down to the, the store right to go get food or walk to your kitchen. Right. You know, it's across the house. I look at it that way where I'm not calling deer lazy, but if there's if there's food just outside of where they're sleeping, they're gonna go to that. They're not gonna walk past that to go to this other food.
0: Well well let me ask you this. When are you killing these deer too? the rut. And what time of day? Are you getting them midday? Are you getting them first thing in the morning, evening?
1: Um, so trying to think, uh the one Charles was at like four something in the afternoon. I want to say like four nineteen. And then the big twelve, I think he was closer to like two o'clock.
0: Okay. So like late afternoon.
1: Yeah, and then the one I missed yesterday was at like seven oh five in the morning. Okay. So
0: <clears throat> like kind of piggy piggybacking off of like the whole hunting beast and infall style. He's pretty much using almost those exact same techniques that you are, where he's getting in, in close to bedding areas. And then he's hunting those transitions and he's pretty much pegging them relatively within the last hour of dark. Now, this is all outside of the rut. Once the rut comes in, it's a totally different story. Now, do you find it that bucks in your area as far as like new hampshire are still using the the same primary bedding areas throughout the year and by throughout the year i mean fall through till the snow starts coming because obviously they're going to move to different areas once the leaves are off the hardwoods and they're going to transition to the the conifers and then when they're still in their summer patterns that really doesn't count
1: I guess I guess it's like a tough question because like one thing I've found out about like box and as far as you know patterning them or what they do as far as bedding areas go, I've realized that like or noticed that during the rut, it doesn't it literally just seems like the box will bed wherever when they're tired. And it seems like I think during the you know that classic you know yeah you buck bedding and doe bedding you know during the summertime and the earlier in the season they they are using that buck bedding, but it seems like a lot of times when you see them, they're on the downwind side of a doe bedding area, and I honestly think they, they transition into that the doe bedding later in the season just because they're after a doe and that's where they want to be. So,
0: and then you just catch them coming out of the doe bedding.
1: Yeah, or cruising the edge. I mean, both both of the big bucks I've shot at are on the edge of edge of doe bedding. I mean, and the downwind, downwind. Side. yeah, downwind. I mean, that's some tip for anyone hunting, trying to shoot big bucks during the rut. If you got a good solid doe bedding area, and you get a wind that's coming out of that doe bedding, either you know to the top side of it, the bottom side of it, the west side, east side, whatever it may be. You want to be on the side about 50, 60 yards off of it that the wind's coming out of because he's going to run that edge between you and the betting.
0: Now, how do you go about finding bet, doe betting areas? Like, do you pre-scout doe betting areas or is that just stuff? Because ultimately, like you said, you're scouting 365, whether that's actually during hunting season and you're, you're paying attention to your surroundings while you're in the field or you're actually doing it post-season, pre-season?
1: A lot of it is just, you know, once again, it's that boots on ground thing. I mean, I on and the internet stuff we have nowadays, it's, it's awesome, but I think it also makes hunt, us as hunters lazy because we do so much of it from, from the computer, but you're still going to do boots on ground. So whether it be the off-season or during season, I always have binoculars strapped to my chest. So if I can get like, down, downside of a bedding area, and scan into it and look for the deer, or you see a group of does cross the road first thing in the morning, most of the time they're either going to or coming from betting. Mm-hmm. So that's an area that you i know, like, I'll pin it on my phone. Like, oh, check that out. And when I have time during the day, I'll, I'll look at it and then I'll go look for that bedding area.
0: Do you, when you're, when you're uh, in the field scouting, do you backtrack runways?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. So I zigzag a lot. Like if I'm in the woods, I'll zigzag through a piece instead of going like straight line. Like I don't, I never really set a destination when I go into a piece of woods. So I'll zigzag through it. And if I find a big trail, I'll follow it up a couple hundred yards. And if that didn't, if I didn't find anything, if I get to the top of it and there's feeding up there, I'll follow it back down just to see what's on the other side. of it. And sometimes, you know, there isn't anything or it branches off to what to like a few different runs, which is what I call like the hub where you have a bunch of runs that run into each other. And then that gives you another point to branch off of and look from there.
0: Do you hunt, do you hunt those hubs? Oh yeah. Yeah. Those hubs can be absolutely gold pre rut. Like I love hunting those hubs in the pre rut. You'll get bucks that will literally come right into those hubs stand there even during the rut too oh yeah exactly exactly yeah definitely during the rut uh but you'll get like you'll get those big boys that get on their feet that are getting antsy for that first dough coming in and instead of like going from doe bedding to doe bedding to doe bedding during the pre-rut they'll just go to that hub and then that's how they'll pick up that first hot dough exactly yeah i've i've had I- some pretty good success with that
1: yeah, the, those hubs are really what's awesome. Like pre rut or when you're just getting into the rut, like you said, you know they're cruising trying to look for that first hot doe, and the easiest way for them to do it is on on a main run. And then it seems like once you get into that peak where there's a lot more does getting into estrus, mm-hmm. is when they're cruising those bedding areas on the downwind side because they can broadcast a bigger area,
0: right? Yeah, and, and it's more likely that in that, that bedding area, there might even be three three hot does. Uh, at least down here where our gear density is a little bit higher, um, there might be three or four hot does in a, in a doe bedding area, and he's just going to go plowing through there and get on whichever one's the hottest or just start chasing them all. Who knows?
1: Yeah, it's the funniest thing watching them chase too because if, especially when there's a group of does too, because it's almost like they – they lose track where they're zigzagging, going to each one, trying to figure it out.
0: Yep, yep, exactly.
1: Which I've never had like a absolute like close encounter as far as them chasing. I mean, I've seen them chase before, never like real close to me. That, but my my brother last year had like one of the most amazing experiences when he shot his buck last year. He had like seven or eight does come in, and just had a buck barrel down the hill and the buck bypassed like three or four of the other does to get to the hot one and he stopped dead in his tracks in his mock scrape and that's where he shot him he actually got a trail camera picture of him in the tree stand and the buck in the mock scrape when he shot wow
0: that's pretty sweet
1: so let's So talk- it's, it's funny just watching him sometimes because you know, it's almost like their scattered brain. They can't figure out what dough to go to, or they absolutely know like, Hey, that's the one I want.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Let's talk about that. Cause you've done some videos in the past. And I think one of the, the most informational ones that you've done is how you use mock scrapes. And that kind of ties into, uh, this big woods hunting. Do you want to kind of talk on that here a little bit?
1: Oh yeah. I, I love talking mock scrapes because I honestly think mock scrapes are one of the most amazing things you can use as far as informational of what's in your area. And as far as having something they'll come and check. So me personally, like mocks, like scrapes to me, that's a year round thing. It's, it's like that scent post, you know, that big rub that's out in the woods that every deer, whether it's a spike or 180 inch giants using but, you know, mock scrapes are something that anytime a deer really passes by them, they're going to either urinate in it, lick that licking branch, and it's kind of just their way of checking in because, you know, they can't be like, hey, what's what's going on? They don't talk like we talk. So that's their way of being like, oh, hey, like, Bruce is here. So they, put, you know, they recognize each other via scent. And mm-hmm. I Almost every one of my stands has a mock scrape at it, and they go out, before the season starts. You know, I either use young muck urine, straight dough urine. I use I use Black Widow Deer lures. You know, they have the branch butter and they have the rub butter and stuff like that. But the, I've had my most success off of those. And I put I hang a camera on every single one. So I may have two cameras at each stand where one's kind of covering like a feeding area or a trail, and the other one's on the mock scrape, because that's my way I can inventory what's coming into my area because almost every deer goes to it
0: right now with those mock scrapes are you finding usage on those scrapes uh all times of the day or mostly nocturnal uh what about that kind of information there and then what are you doing with that information
1: i guess it's like it's a it's 50 50 i mean it you know that big if that big buck comes by it's middle of night. Or if that young buck comes by, it's the middle of the night. It's it's 5050 where if they're coming by it during the day, they're gonna check it. And that that's how I use it is if they're coming daytime, it's that central location where they can come and check what's come who's came through or how old or how long ago someone came through. And I I honestly like early season don't necessarily use it as a time of day when to hunt it type deal, but I use it as for, as more of like that inventory.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then once the rut comes, I use it. If I can get the same buck coming to it routinely, which most of the time when that happens, it's going to be earlier in the rut before he bounces out of his core area. He's going back to that rut thing. They use a core area. They, the first thing, when the bucks and come into the rut and the does come into estrus, is they're using that core area where they are where you find them all summer and all early fall before the rut. They're breeding the does they can in that area first. And then they get into like that cruising phase where they're going to a bedding area that's a mile away because there's no more hot does for them to breed. So during the early rut, it's the most informational for me because I can see like, oh, Aaron, he you know, he's coming to this every other day, or he's getting this every day at noon.
0: So you find it that patternable, like uh early rut, where and, and like you'll see the same buck coming into the scrape every day.
1: Up up here, I think it's a lot different. So like I, I have had the same buck coming every day. But most of the time, like on my mock scripts here, I may, I may get a buck like that big eight. I shot, he was coming once a week,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, but certain areas, it seems like it's more frequent than others. And I think that really depends on the deer density in that area.
2: Right. With
1: me, like if, if I have uh, a 15 acre bedding area that I'm hunting and there's 20 does in it, it's going to take him a lot longer to breed those 20 does. He's going to hang out there longer than he is in that area that has three does. Right. So I think the, the doe population really depends on the frequency that he's going to be in that area during the rot.
0: So, and I'm curious what you think. So I, this is how I use scrapes. I primarily try to find community scrapes. I don't really waste my time on, um, territorial scrapes or uh like directional scrapes like you know how like on a logging road you'll get those like just travel scrapes where you walk five feet there's a scrape on a on a logging road every five feet i don't really throw a whole lot of cameras on those and i don't really use that as far as uh a whole lot of information for actually trying to pinpoint a location of where to hunt a deer because it's so random the information that you get One day it might be at two in the morning. The next day it might be at like six o'clock at night. Uh, Then that deer might not show up for four weeks and then you get them again. Uh, But what I try to really focus on is community scrapes near bedding areas. And I'll throw up cameras on those community scrapes. And I feel like personally, as the season goes on and you get closer and closer to Halloween, you'll start getting those more mature bucks hitting those community scrapes more regularly and once that shows up on those cameras that's the time to hunt them but if oh yeah if if you let's say like you have a community scrape that it's they're hitting it once a week in early season and it might not be until two o'clock at night well to me that means that i gotta backtrack and work backwards from that location and try to get either deeper into the bedding area or potentially move especially if it's even later at night let's say it's at like two in the morning i might need to move a half a mile because that buck's not getting there from his bedding location uh for three hours assuming assuming he gets up at six or or seven or whatever you know what i mean
1: oh oh yeah for sure and that's i mean that's essentially what you're doing with a mock scrape too. is you're making that community scrape for them to check you're just using it to your advantage in front of your stand or your camera. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's I've just scouted a piece behind the house, you know, doing some in season scouting, and there was a scrape every five yards, right? Like, and it, you know, to me, that was just probably one pissed off young buck that came through. And he was just ripping every every branch overhanging beach branch or hemlock branch on this log trail. He was stopping at and ripping it up and that that's the stuff i mean it's i mean it's good as far as scouting goes but it's not anything i'm gonna hang a camera on i mean it's telling me that all right a buck is using this trail but it's you know it's not that community script you know they're not going to come back and recheck it they it just they're cruising through their testosterone's high they're pissed off and they want to rip something up exactly
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, One of the other things, and we're working on an hour here, one of the other things I want to talk about uh, before we hop off is your tracking. I know you you said that you hunt a lot on the ground and you do a lot of tracking when, when the snow starts flying up there. Tell me a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about that and how you use that in your favor. So you're potentially in a location where you do have a little bit higher of a deer density and this can be applicable for hunters that um, live in rural areas that they have enough timber to track deer across large expansions of timber um, and get on them. So, what are you primarily doing there? I know you mentioned earlier about like starting tracks based out of bedding areas.
1: So when I when I first started track, I mean, I guess I'm. Like, um, some guys do it the way I do it. Some guys don't. Um, First thing I do is like I'll, I'll cruise. I'll hop on a track anywhere if there's a block of timber. So like I hop in the rig, and I usually start like an, I don't necessarily start on the track, but I'll go and try to find a track like two hours before legal hunting, just so I can get that jump, and I'll pin it, and I'll keep cruising till about a half hour before legal. And if I can't find anything else, I'll go back to it. So I'll start early in the morning during a snowstorm or just after a snowstorm and try to get that jump before everyone else gets out and starts getting the snow. Because that's the big thing up here is, you know, snow comes and all of a sudden everyone's big buck, big woods tracker. And you'll see a lot of guys just cruising, doing the same thing you are. So I like getting that jump on them. But say I'm driving down a road and I can't find a track crossing that road. The next thing I do is I go to my known bedding areas because they're they're going to bed down during that snowstorm. They're going to get up to feed after that snowstorm. And I'll start cruising the edges of the bedding area, trying to catch one coming out of it. And if I can't catch one coming out of it, I'll hop in the bedding and I'll try to push one out of it. And if I do jump one, I'll wait. I'll let them get out, get in front of me, let them settle down a little bit. And then hop on that track. And I like, I honestly like tracking in woods. I know just because I can be like, all right, they came out of this bedding area. There's a good feeding area this way. And knowing a piece too, allows you to maybe sometimes get off a track and kind of loop out in front of them. I started either right from the road, right from the truck off a trail. And if I can't get them there, I go right to the bedding area And the big thing with me, like with tracking, you have a lot of guys that are hardcore into tracking or still hunting, it's keeping your chin up. Because a lot of times when you're following that track in the snow, you have the tendency of looking down to follow the track. What I do is I I keep the chin up and you can, most of the time you can see that track for 20, 30 yards, depending on what you're in. So I pick like a tree that I'm going to go to. And i'm gonna get to that tree i'm gonna stop and i'm gonna scan with naked eye as as far as i can left right all the way around me and then i'm gonna pick up the binos and i'm gonna do the same thing because i'm looking i'm you know i'm looking for that deer whether it's bedded back down it's standing there watching me looking at me and if i don't see nothing i'm gonna look back down look at that track and I'm gonna look the way it went, pick another spot 30, 40 yards away, and I'm gonna do that again. And keep repeating the process either until it gets dark, it goes into a piece I can't hunt, whether it be posted, someone's backyard, or until that deer gets shot.
0: So, so as you're as you're as you're piecing this track together, what are some of the like are there any tells of like you're getting close things to be looking out for, or is it you're just doing your, your meticulous, basically still hunt stopping and repeating that process over and over until you see the, you see the deer.
1: So you can, you can tell a lot off a track. So like if, if it's still snowing and there's no snow in that track, if you start on a track and there's snow in it, and all of a sudden there's snow in it and it's a running track. Chances are you probably jumped that deer up. It got wind if you or something. But usually, you know, when you get the s- snow's not in it is when you're getting close to it. It's a hotter track. Um, I mean, there's a lot of telltale signs where if they start kind of making like a circle, trying to get around you because everyone knows that's what deer do. You know, because most of the time with the track, The wind's either hitting them in the side of the face or dead on in the face. They like to walk into the wind or the wind on the side of their face. So if all of a sudden that track starts kind of making a circle and it's running or bounding, you probably jumped it up and it's trying to get downwind of you so it can smell you. And what I, in that case, like what I do is I'll either stay put for 20, 30 minutes, hoping that it does circle back to the way it was going. Or I'll kind of cut, cut that track off and, you know, so say like it starts hooking to the left, I'll get off that track and I'll walk almost 45 to it left, almost like trying to bump into that deer on its path to either get around me or go to wherever it's going. Or, you know, you can look into like urine and stuff like that too, where is it frozen in the snow or is it the snow around? it still pretty loose.
0: right is it potentially melted all the way through that it's like that warm yeah
1: i mean there's a, a lot of the stuff i've learned with tracking it's all like it's all i'm not i'm not some big huge know-it-all on tracking i've shot a few deer tracking with with the bow and with the gun i i personally like tracking with a bow because it just it to me it's such a more of an accomplishment because I don't pick them out, bet it at 80 yards, and then then I'm able to make the 80 yard shot or whatever.
2: But
1: mm-hmm. the boat requires me to get so much closer to them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've passed a lot of deer tracking too, where you know I was after a bigger buck, and I got on a track that looked like a big buck, and it ends up being you know a little basket four pointer or six pointer, and they're bedded down at 40 yards, and you can sit there and just watch them do their thing. And to me like that that's a successful track in my book too where i did successfully track the animal and i was able to pass it and get out of there without it knowing i was there
0: right you basically did the entire deal except for pull the trigger yeah yeah i mean that's definitely not to your about i would i can i would consider that a success as well
1: and along with tracking too you know It allows you to, like, with that snow, it allows you to see a lot of stuff you can't necessarily see on bare ground. You can pick out those main runs, bedding, and feeding so much easier because they have to either pack that snow down, they all travel in that one path, or they push that snow over to get to those acorns underneath. Mm -hmm. So you can use that as far as, like, a scouting advantage, too, where now you figured out, oh, hey, like, in this time of year, they're feeding here because obviously it's in season. So you're able to figure out that feeding, that bedding area, that main run. And then either the next weekend, use that to your advantage where you can hunt that feeding, hunt that main run, hunt that bedding or the next season, you know where it is. Right. Is once snow hits the ground for me, like I could care less honestly about being in a tree stand because it's a great time to get out and do that in-season scouting. And that's honestly why I love still hunting. Like I said, I grew up stand hunting, doing sits in tree stands, freezing my butt off, fondled up there looking like the Michelin Man. And I love just being on the ground now because I, I learned so much more about a property and a piece from the ground than I do sitting in a tree stand. And I see a lot more deer from the ground too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you definitely have to uh, make sure it definitely sharpens your woodsmanship skills for sure. And with that being said, when you are, when you're hunting the big timber, let's talk about your gear list. What are some of the staples that you're always bringing with you? And then. Maybe break it down from when you're, you're stand hunting, you're in a ground blind and when you're tracking, how does your, how does your gear pack change?
1: So number one thing that I always have with me, and I think this should be honestly the number one thing on every outdoorsman, not even just hunters, fishermen, hikers, whatever is water or some sort of, you know, Gatorade, Powerade, some sort of hydration, That should be number one across the board for anybody is something to stay hydrated with. And then from there down, I mean, obviously whatever you're shooting, as far as a weapon, whether it be bow, or flintlock, whatever it may be, you obviously want that. But I carry a pair of binos with me at all times. One thing I will not leave the house with, I don't freaking care if I'm going to stand ground blind on foot is my grunt call that September through December, it is with me because I, I can't tell you how many times that I've heard a deer running off and I've been able to grunt, turn them around and have them come in
2: Mm
1: -hmm. always with me and that, you know, your knives and your license, like my, my packing as far as gear list is very simplistic. I don't like to carry a lot of stuff because I don't know, how far I'm going to go. And if I'm going to, going to end up doing four miles, I don't want two days worth of stuff with me.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: You know, obviously if you're in a tree stand, I'm packing either, you know, depending on the time of year, I'm either packing a pair of bibs with me. A change of socks is another big one I have with me at all times. I always have a dry pair of socks because I hate when my feet get cold, but I, I only wear 200 gram insulated rubber boots. I wear those green lacrosse's that have like no insulation mm-hmm. all year. Um, so I bring a, a change of socks because if my feet get cold or get sweaty, I want to be able to put something dry on and not have those cold, wet feet. So i mean, stand ground blind. That's, you know, an extra layer, extra pair of socks tracking. It's an extra pair of socks as far as where stuff I would wear to pack with me but it's generally the same across the board for me. It's binoculars, grunt, hydration, and a change of socks.
0: Do you, do you take a a compass or a map or anything like that? Or are you just strictly navigating off of your phone?
1: Um, I have like one of those all compasses I can pin to me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but Honestly, I hardly ever look at it. Um, and I honestly hardly look at my phone in the woods. I, I've been fortunate enough that I have never really got lost in the woods. Nice. But, uh, um, compass is a big one. I mean, I, I always have it on me because it's like on my most worn pair of hunting, my most worn hunting shirt, or it's on my backpack. But you know, it's, it's there just in case I do look down at, like if I'm going into a piece of woods, I can be like, all right, I'm heading Northeast. And then I know that I need to go back out the opposite direction, Mm -hmm. but I don't care. I don't personally carry it. I do have like a handheld GPS that tracks my, uh, the way I walked that I can, if, you know, if need be, if I do get lost, I can follow that back out, but that's another thing. I hardly look at it. It's, it's there. If I need it, I turn it on and then kind of just go do my thing. Right. I'm, I'm a simple type of hunter when it comes to gear packing you know i got buddies that bring a three-day supply worth of stuff with them
0: that's not necessarily a bad thing i mean when you got a system and you got a system figured out and if that system is simple for you there's no reason to change it
1: oh yeah i mean i just it makes it easy for me as far as not forgetting stuff too (laughs) i mean i think we've all been there where you know you get to a spot and you're like damn i forgot my gun or my bow yeah, we've I think you're not a real hunter to me unless you've forgotten your weapon, right? At least on, on one occasion. Yeah, yeah, but, we've all been know, makes, that, makes that packing list so much more simple where I'm like, all right, water check, run check, socks check, simple, easy. You know, if I'm if I know I'm going to go out for a day, I'll pack a sandwich or something with me.
0: Now, are you letting people know potentially where you go?
1: Most of the time I do, I'll either girlfriend, she she hunts. So if she's not with me, I'll tell her like, Hey, like I'm heading in here. My plan is to go to here or I'm going to be in this piece of woods and I'll give her a time too. like, if like during bear season, it was, I told her, I was like, Hey, you know, like sunsets at this time, I'm going to sit obviously a half hour after and it takes me about a half hour to walk out off of my bait site. So I'd tell her like, You know, if I'm not at the house by say an hour and a half after dark, after, after sunset, drive down to my Jeep, sit there for 15 minutes. If I'm not out in those 15 minutes, call somebody and then start your way down into the stand. Mm -hmm. So I always let someone know where I'm going to be at just for that one little safety thing. Of if, you know, if I don't come back is some of the areas up here, I don't have cell service Right. Like, you know, I got a little bit here at the house, but if I walk to that blind, I hunted the other day behind the house. And it's literally, I, I was telling you the other day, it's 50 yards behind the house. I don't have, I have maybe one bar if I'm sitting on one corner of the blind. And then if I go to the other corner, I have no service. <laughs> so it, it's extremely spotty up here. So I, I do let people know even even places i do have service you know i'll text my brother you know I think means the thing is as, as a hunting group most people are like hey you know like i plan on sitting this stand tomorrow
0: yeah i think it's always good practice to let somebody know at least relatively where you're going to be at relatively what time you're going to you should be out that way if you don't have some type of messaging system if you don't have service or something like that somebody's coming in looking for you and checking on you because
1: yeah, you, you, never know. Bed, you know, you fall on your tree stand, you know, you're flipping through TikTok or something like, up in your stand and you fall out of the thing, drop your phone down to the base of the tree and now you can't call anybody. Exactly. At least someone knows where you're at.
0: Exactly. Yep. Exactly.
1: And I guess that's another thing I can add to my list of stuff I bring with me if I'm going to a stand is I bring my harness. Yep me if, if you're hunting a stand you're i don't necessarily always wear them in my ladder stands because i i like hunting out of two-man stands because they're way more comfortable when you're by yourself mm-hmm. i don't necessarily wear them in the two-man stand but if i'm in my 20-foot hang-ons i'm in i'm in a harness and i think every hunter should practice wearing a harness without a doubt because
0: in my opinion if it hasn't happened it's just a matter of time um i know a guy that fell out of uh a hand climber and landed on a log broke his back. Um I Oof. know Yeah, we we just had a kid I went to high school with his grandfather died um in his uh falling out of a tree stand. So I mean just just wear it. You know what I mean? Just wear it.
1: Yeah. And I they make so so, so much com- more comfortable ones like when exactly when I first started hunting the harnesses sucked. They were so uncomfortable. Like I wear, I have a you know, just like a Walmart Gorilla one. I, you know, I have a muddy one too, but a Walmart gorilla one is literally like putting on a vest with leg straps. It's got buckles on the legs and it's got pockets and everything. It's like wearing a nice vest. So to me, like, you know, there's no excuse not to wear it. You know, I don't want to, you know, hearing, oh, it's uncomfortable. You, then you don't have the right harness. Exactly. Exactly.
0: All right, James. Well, we're uh, we're pushing over our hour mark. Uh, so where can the listeners get a hold of you if they want to bounce any questions off you want to follow what you got going on via your social media, that kind of stuff?
1: Uh, so I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all that, all that good stuff. Facebook is just James Simons and Simons, S-Y-M-O-N-D as in dog, S that I believe my Instagram is drop time 23 is the tech like username, but you can search James Simons and I'm on, I'm on there too.
0: All right. I'll make sure I get your uh, links to your social media on the show notes. And then anybody that wants to reach out to James, he's more than willing to help. Uh, if you got questions on big woods, hunting, tracking, um, hunting in the new England area, He's also a very, very big turkey hunter, very, very successful turkey hunter. Hit him up with your turkey questions as well. We're actually going to probably do a, a part two New England turkey hunting here as it gets closer to spring. So uh keep an eye out for that.
1: Yeah, love me, love me some turkey hunting. And don't rule out New England states as that turkey mecca is up here smashes for them long beards.
0: Yeah. How many did you kill last year?
1: I killed four last year. I killed two in Maine and two in New Hampshire. I was going to go to Vermont, but got later in the season, and I decided not to.
0: And and how many birds did you call in for people to kill?
1: Ooh, um, I think in the ballpark of 10 last year. I mean, <laughs> girlfriend killed one. I think it scored out at like 73. It had it was 23 and a 23-and-a-half-pound bird with almost inch-and-a-half spurs. Jeez. And I, call, I called in a triple beard for one of my buddies. I think one beard was like four and three quarters. The other one was five and three quarters. And the other third beard was like nine and a half. Jeez. Oh, yeah. But both of those, my girlfriend's bird and my buddy's bird are both at the same taxidermist right now. Nice. Needless to say. Nice.
0: <laughs> All right, buddy. Till the turkey podcast. Uh, stay in touch. And thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in to the Whitetail Theories podcast.